Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. This week's show is being broadcast the day before Thanksgiving, so I wanted to take a tangential look at that and other cultural and historical issues with my guest, Taylor Keane. Taylor Keane is a full-time lecturer at Creighton University's Hyder College of Business and is a business consultant with Talent Strategy. Taylor is a tribal citizen of both the Omaha and the Cherokee Nation. A graduate of both Dartmouth College and Harvard University, Taylor is presently the author of Rediscovering America, a work on ancient Native American history and culture. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. My first Thanksgiving was, it was um, November uh, 2000. My exposure to it is as an expat or was as an expat. And I found it to be just a really wonderful, warm, large family celebration that didn't seem particularly tied to anything other than... Turkey, dressing, (laughs) gravy. Exactly. So, you know, maybe before we have a conversation about this tangential look at Thanksgiving um, and other elements that perhaps we should be considering and reflecting upon around that holiday time, I'm just wondering if we might share some of our traditions around Thanksgiving. So what are yours? Sure, that's a great question. Um, Historically, I think Thanksgiving for me meant uh, time with family, extended family. My mother getting up very early in the morning and putting in a turkey and uh, getting all of the giblets, giblets, I can never remember which one it is, for proper gravy. And uh, preparation of uh, pre-Christmas cookies, which was a big thing in our house. Uh, in general, I do remember, this could not be totally in the time of November, but it, these things usually are because uh, November means Native American month in the United States more recently, which is a good thing. But it typically has um, meant a lot of requests for visits to classrooms. Uh, I think one of the earliest photos that I have of my young self in tribal ceremonial regalia was not at a dance, but was um, me with a little drum, probably uh, drumming for a song that my grandmother sang. And all of the children were seated around me in fake uh, headbands and fake feathers, which today I would I would probably say you know that's not maybe that's not such a great idea, but at the time uh, I I reflect upon that now as a professor as my one of my earliest teaching moments. Um, somewhere in that time frame was another early memory of walking home from school, and I'm pretty sure it was around Thanksgiving time because that's when pilgrims and Indians come up. I grew up between here in Nebraska and, and down in uh, Cherokee country in Oklahoma, two tribes, Omahas and Cherokees. My mates were playing cowboys and Indians. Well, besides being a um, one of the first Native American attorneys in the United States, my father was also a cattleman when we were growing up. And all of us were quite influenced by uh, that part of the culture. That part of Northeast Oklahoma is famous for cattlemen, stock providers to the Professional Rodeo Cowboy Association, lots of bulldoggers, that's what I did, a lot of bull riders, bucking horses. 
So we were little cowboys and Indians, and we wanted to be cowboys that day. And they wouldn't let us because we were Indians. It was around that time frame that I also remember uh, my first self-actualization of what my identity was. And uh, it might have been that first teaching moment where I was dressed in regalia that I'm very proud that my mother has always encouraged me to do. I was explaining that there was my grandmother there, but that I had other grandmothers as well. And so in our Native American traditions, especially in the Central Plains here uh, with the Omaha tribe, we have an extended family unit. And so um, just as I had a mother, all of her sisters, I also called mother. So I had many mothers and many grandmothers, and I think that uh, blew the minds of the other children, and they just couldn't get their arms wrapped around it. And it was at that point that I realized what my identity was as an indigenous person, was that we had a different worldview, uh, certainly kinship system, than others did. I just couldn't imagine a world where you didn't have many moms, dads, uncles, aunties, grandma, grandpas. And uh, I know now in reflection, it had to do with some very serious historical matters. Um, more than likely how the tribe uh, adapted um, to what could have been the plague was most certainly smallpox. There were three waves in the, this Nebraska area, 1800, 1830, 1860, where the net cumulative effect was the loss of life of somewhere between 85 and 90% for the tribes here. And so when you have that type of loss, um, there has to be a system in place. Who would better be a replacement if you lost your mother than her sisters? And so it began to make sense. But of course, as a young child, I didn't know these things. All I knew was that I had many grandmothers and grandfathers, and they didn't. And so you mentioned that November is also Native American month? Yes. And and it, in some ways, to me, feels like a little bit of an Irony. It is an irony. So, why don't we talk about the irony a little bit? Maybe, maybe we talk about some of the origins. That what I think of is maybe the, the the fable of the inception of Thanksgiving as we understand it, and the stories we share about it. Maybe the saccharine sentiments that we associate with that, and and, and perhaps what we might be reflecting upon instead. And it's at that fable that uh, a lot of my curiosity. Um, especially with the writing of the book. I'm, um, I set the timing to try to finish this chapter during this month, and the title is um, The Founder's Dilemma of America. And in some sense, it's trying to understand um, these inconsistencies. But uh, one is to lay out some of the facts about what was happening during these time periods through a number of lenses, because I think all are important. And I... Uh, as an indigenous thinker, um, want to honor and acknowledge um, not only my tribal perspective, but my American perspective as well, because I s still consider myself quite the American patriot. And I'm hoping that through these different lenses that we can all understand one another a little bit better. Part of the the fable kind of focuses on the year 1637 when uh, Massachusetts colony governor John Winthrop uh, proclaimed a Thanksgiving. Um, I believe that he did, in fact, do that. Uh, depending upon the lens that you look through, um, one of my um, 
perspectives I like to do is to look into general media. And uh, there was a blog titled The True Story of Thanksgiving by Richard Greener on the Huffington Post. And his perspective is, most would say, revisionist history. Uh, his perspective <clears throat> was to acknowledge that there was this event by Governor Winthrop in 1637. But what they were celebrating was the return of some of their armed hunters, all colonial volunteers who had just returned from their journey to what is now Mystic, Connecticut, where they massacred 700 Pequot Indians. And so uh, I, I read these things, and, and these are smart journalists, uh, and wonder that this is a part of that spectrum of the Founders' Dilemma of America. So you have, in reality... Um, a part of the fable that you mentioned uh, is even much broader than that because here is a group of European Christians who are being persecuted for their particular beliefs. The minutiae of those differences uh, today would be overlooked, but then they were not. Um, I don't know my European religious history enough to know exactly uh, what they were being persecuted for, but ultimately became known as the Calvinistic movement here in America, uh, and the pilgrims became the Puritans. So it was this very pious perspective that the new world was, uh, in fact, made for them, and the demise of the Indians that were there beforehand was a sign from God that they had divine right to take the land. Um, further research uh, understands that uh, the conquest of the West in general goes way back and has its origins in the doctrine of discovery. And so you have a series of papal edicts, uh, the first in the 1450s, uh, which granted Portugal the right to begin to colonize. And there was a number of public debates and thoughts on it. Was it justified to declare war uh, on some of these resource-rich laden uh, lands? And you began the whole period in Europe of colonization as uh, expansionist theory. And in that first edict, it did not say anything about slavery. The result was slavery. Um, in various degrees, which continue to plague all of the Western world from the expansionism. And uh, it allowed them uh, the term sovereignty, which is a granting by the Pope, basically, to different monarchs and other Christian countries, the right to do this, thus the doctrine of discovery. So, of course, what were they? They were the first Europeans to discover something, certainly not the first people there. And I've been reviewing a work. The uh, author's name is Professor Newell, Brethren by Nature, and it's examining slavery in early America. And so up until around 1700, that policy, which was established for essentially uh, South America, uh, gave free license to privateers, as it were, uh, one of which um, was Christopher Columbus. And it was only after uh, his... Uh, seemingly benign exploits into finding a passage to the east that he came ac across uh, some indigenous tribes in the Caribbean. And uh, I've yet to dive deep into that. I will 
for the work, but uh, arguably uh, genocide, uh, rape, enslavement, extinction of those first tribes, justified by papal edict. And so it's, it's hard to look at those things uh, to understand history, but it's, it, it is powerful to know what it is. Own the history. Does it make, re, make me angry? No. It makes me realize the reality of the human condition. And um, to continually recognize things like um, lest the oppressed become the oppressors. And I think to me that's the human lesson. Here you have persecuted European Christians coming to the new world versus the old world in a very short amount of time, uh, beginning to oppress the indigenous populations. see from the historical record that almost immediately after um, contact, there began, you know, battle over territory. Uh, ultimately, it became a very slippery slope. And uh, you see a first a pattern of war captives being indentured. In many cases, the judicial system tended those indentured terms of servitude to increase, uh, if not um, go intergenerational. And so we see a number of examples uh, researching this about uh, indentured servitude turning into chattel slavery. So up to the point around 1700, there were more indigenous slaves in America than there were African, and it quickly turned after that uh, the other direction. But, you know, some very serious history that is not acknowledged by mainstream historians for the most part either. There's lots of fables. Thanksgiving is but one of them. Um, there were many rebellions during that time period, most um, driven by the angry indigenous over this increasing indentured servitude towards chattel slavery. And so um, King Philip's War is one that was really done out of rebellion by the tribes up there. And so you couldn't get anything further from the truth. And I begin with this not to provide... Uh, something heavy for your listeners, but a reality backdrop for how this fable occurred. Uh, the founder's dilemma of his America is uh, the guilty conscience of America, in, in my opinion. For what the facts were, there was no way that they could share this truth or acknowledge this truth. There is nothing honorable about it. As a matter of fact, it's almost something to be ashamed of. 
Um, all these, you know, it, whether Greener's article, his blog is correct, but, you know, that the Thanksgiving was in celebration of killing 700 Pequots, including men, women, and children. Um, is that overcorrecting? I don't know. We don't have any tweets from that time period. We can't go back that far. But it certainly explains a lot about the psychology of America as a person. If the country is a person, it felt it feels guilty about what it did and creates these fables of this wonderful union between indigenous peoples and early pilgrims. They're all false. You mentioned oppressors and the pilgrims being oppressed for their religious beliefs um, in the old world and coming to the new and asserting a degree of divine right to colonize this, this land. A God-given right to colonize. And so in, in that context, it would make sense, I think, that here we are, the descendants of those people uh, to, to a lesser or greater degree. And um, we wouldn't want that founding to be based upon one of deceit and warmongering. Uh, and so it makes sense that we would want to believe the fable. Absolutely. Wasn't even um, a bona fide national day until President Lincoln, who in trying to unify what had been the North and the South into cohesive unit used the allegory of the pilgrims and the Indians. And wasn't even popularized in the United States and school systems until after World War I. So we should talk about how that narrative has shaped itself because I think that speaks a lot to how we consider our identity now uh, and our responsibilities as well as our possibilities. You mentioned that there weren't tweets from the early 1600s and, and so through the uh, wonder of Wikipedia, uh, I grabbed an excerpt from a roughly contemporaneous diary note of sorts by Edward Winslow. And he attended what many regard as an original Thanksgiving celebration in 1621, uh, held by the pilgrims at the Plymouth Plantation. And so I, I have a short excerpt here, and, and he said, our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labor. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company almost a week. At which time, among other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which we brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And then, of course, there's this cultural law that goes with that, with paintings and, and other literary works uh, associated with this story. So the narrative not only is extended, but it amplifies and grows and, and broadens until we end up, you know, with our own exercising of arms and, and feasting and rejoicing, consuming this narrative. And yet, to your earlier point, it's a story that perhaps prevents us from thinking more deeply about what else November stands for, which, as you said earlier, it's Native American Month. I wanted to respond because this um, goes right along with um, 
my forays in, in research into these areas because I'm just fascinated with history and culture and these unique cultural lenses that we put through. So here we have an account in 1621. Um, I found a wonderful account. Um, the contact was um, Ramona Peters, the Mash P. Wampanoag Tribes Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. And this was through an indigenous media lens. And so, she, you know, she's immersed herself in the, they, that was indeed the, the tribe of Massasoit. And so she acknowledges that, that most of this probably came from, you know, uh, my joke is most American holidays are uh, designed by Hallmark. Well, this one, again, we're looking at President Lincoln. And so to go through the Wampanoag or the Mashpee lens is a very interesting one that we have here. And so um, part of, of her perspective and through that indigenous land of the, of the Wampanoag, the true history of Thanksgiving starts with a treaty. The leader of our nation at that time, Yellow Feather or Massasoit, made a treaty with John Carver, the first governor of the colony. They elected an official while they were still on the boat. They had their charter. They were still under the jurisdiction of the King of England. At least that's what they told us. So they could make a treaty for a boatload of people. So they made a treaty between two nations, England and the Wampanoag nation. So a very different account. It basically said we'd let them be there and we would protect them against any enemies and they would protect us from any of ours. So that makes sense for the time. Question put forth to... Miss Peters, what's the Mashpee version of the of the 1621 meal? And it does coincide, but two different perspectives. You probably heard the story of how Squanto assisted in the planting of corn. So this was their first successful harvest, and they were celebrating that harvest and planning a day of their own Thanksgiving. So this is the pilgrims. It's kind of like what some Arab nations do when they celebrate by shooting guns in the air, which you hear in the other account. They were shooting guns and cannons as a celebration, which alerted us because we didn't know what they were shooting at. So Massasoit gathered up some 90 warriors and showed up at Plymouth, prepared to engage if that's what was happening, if there were any taking of our people. It was a fact-finding mission. When they arrived, it was explained through a translator that they were celebrating their harvest, which coincides with that perspective. So we decided to stay and make sure this was true because we had seen in the other landings, Captain John Smith... Uh, perhaps even the Vikings prior to that, had been here. So we wanted to make sure. So we decided to camp nearby for a few days. During those few days, the men went out to hunt and gather food, deer, ducks, geese, and fish. There were 90 men here at the time, and I think there were only 23 survivors of that boat, the Mayflower. So you can imagine the fear. You have armed natives who are camping nearby. They, the colonists, were always vulnerable to the new land, new creatures, even the trees. There were no such trees in England at the time. People forgot they had just landed here, and this coastline looks very different from what it looks like now. And their culture, new foods, they were afraid to eat a lot of things. In the true history of Thanksgiving, they were very vulnerable, and we did protect them, not just support them. We protected them. You can see throughout their journals, as you just mentioned, that they were always nervous, and unfortunately, when they were nervous, they were very aggressive. So here you have a balancing of historical perspectives, and we come somewhere closer to the truth of Thanksgiving. Do you feel that Thanksgiving itself is a celebration that you personally embrace? You mentioned earlier that you had, you'd grown your own sense of personal identity with a variety of realizations as, as you grew up. So how do you feel now about Thanksgiving? Uh, this is, a, you know, from a truly indigenous 
perspective, I think. Uh, and, and this is a very much a, a, a cultural difference of we're looking at the world in two different ways. Um, American post-Puritanical culture, post-Calvinism, uh, maybe we're not that far post from it, puts church on a Sunday and Thanksgiving once a year. The indigenous perspective is the opposite. Church is Mother Earth. Church is nature. We're in it all the time. We give thanks every day. So that just there are two different perspectives that almost don't reconcile against each other. And so, again, to your initial comment, is so it's ironic, this Native American Heritage Month. And I said, yes, it is. Because on, on, on the one hand, I'm thrilled. Um, we have a number of societies in the Omaha tribe here. Um, I would say one is a general warrior society, and there's those that are even more refined than that. And uh, it's our eagle whistle society. And in essence, you are a servant to the people. And if they ask you with a good heart in the right way, you always say yes. So on the one hand, I'm thrilled. Um, if um, Mrs. Peterson from St. Cecilia's eighth grade class asks me to come speak, I'm, I'm glad to. And it was a wonderful experience to do so. And I'm uh, glad to come visit with you, my friend, on in Thanksgiving time to do a special show. Um, gives me opportunity to see friends I haven't seen in some time, talk about very serious matters in a different lens. Uh, at the same time, there's part of me of saying, I dare you to do it in October, or how about April? Let's have that conversation then. So on the one hand, I'm, I, I feel blessed by the opportunity. Uh, the other time, I, I've, uh, I'm blessed, so I get so many people that want to visit with me in November, but it's, it's quite busy. <laughs> and I would love to get out of the paradigm uh, to get post-colonization. And uh, I would never want to kill Thanksgiving. I like turkey. Uh, is that what they were eating? Eh, maybe, you know. Uh, probably more deer and waterfowl to go along with it. But uh, it is a pretty story. Uh, as I've gotten older and began to go deeper backwards, um, one of my projects, Sacred Seed, of course, is embracing uh, the food sources that um, are the staple of this continent historically. Um, corn, bean, and squash. Some cases, there's, uh, those are the three sisters as part of the cosmology of indigenous peoples here. So as I've gone into that foray, understanding those deeper and growing them, there seems to be a lot of uh, interest in it. Certainly, it fueled the uh, past experiments into basically urbanism by indigenous peoples in the mound building era. So um, most of us, the tribes, um, corn is such a central part of the cosmology. Mother corn is everything. Sometimes she has different names, but it is all of the sacred feminine. And uh, we are now in a um, post-colonial mindset as indigenous people, or I try to. That's why I've reverted back to those things, getting into the natural cycles of growing, when to plant the new moon in May, that only women of childbearing age can actually plant the seeds. Who better to give birth to a seed than a mother? Um, understanding of the cycles, the role of the moon and the sun every year. And in a sense, that's replaced something every day for me of what is this sacred masculine and feminine and that there are roles and if one tends to a garden it never stops 
you know, this this time of year, we are busily out trying to uh, harvest down hickory and oak to turn into wood ash life or fertilizer and to turn the corn into hominy and um, winter crops to put nitrogen back in the soil, uh, seed sharing, uh, gifting, uh, braiding sweetgrass. Uh, these have become uh, a new Thanksgiving for me all, all year long. I think that's an important point to pick up on and to expand upon. You've mentioned sacred seed, you've mentioned corn, you've mentioned Squanto and this idea of uh, him helping the pilgrims know how to farm this particular land that they were uh, not used to. And also the nature of Thanksgiving really being a celebration of bounty and harvest and sustenance but a more Native American viewpoint of that being a perpetual every day of the year celebration. Yes, and that's my point, that there's this ongoing dialogue of how that occurs. And once it becomes part of the uh, daily sacredness, then I'm not sure that people will truly understand the indigenous mindset because that's what it is. It's this constant giving of thanks. It's this constant reverence for... um, Mother Earth as a living entity. I was struck. Uh, I just returned back from a wonderful um, conference. It was put on by a group called Braiding the Sacred. And they're an indigenous seed savers group. It's actually quite profound. There are a number of people like me. They saw or heard uh, some interview with me on, on the topic. And they contacted me and says... Um, they joked, you are a part of our tribe. You just don't know it yet. And uh, there was one gentleman in particular. It was a seed saver. His name was Carl Barnes. And he was Cherokee. And he lived out in the panhandle of Oklahoma. And I knew of his legacy because I'm also Cherokee and that he had created uh, some of these uh, indigenous varieties, hybrids that he had created on his own. One is a glass gem. They're really beautiful. And many um, organic growers know of it. Uh, it's a popping corn that's beautifully colored. Uh, pastels almost look like bubble gum. Um, but he also done stuff for the tribe that's real important. He had kept um, a um, what we call a Cherokee white eagle, which is a blue corn. Uh, in this case, the blue is really uh, deep purple, which is the color of wampum <clears throat> or the color of uh, quahog shell. It's a clam on the East Coast. Uh, that was a part of this historical narrative. Um, these wampum belts are the symbols of the Iroquois Confederacy or the Haudenosaunee, and they're beautiful belts. Cherokees are uh, relatives of the Seneca, and so we have those as well. And uh, so, so it was so important to my ancestors to 
creates these beautiful hybrids. It's corn. We know corn is white or yellow and is sweet here in America. The reality is there's many different types, but these, uh, each kernel is this color of wampum blue, and there's a silhouette of an eagle with his wings outstretched on the sides. People say that's not possible. I can show you so many wonderful things of what corn can be. And so the reverence that was put towards it, this... Um, passion, obsession of individuals to figure out that corn can be on one extreme popping too sweet on the other, can be flour uh, combined with beans. is quite healthy for you uh, combined with low-fat game and you had a very good diet for indigenous peoples. Does it make you optimistic for the future that this Native American ethos that celebrates the daily celebration of giving thanks for what Mother Earth provides and the sacredness of of some of those aspects is being given more attention more broadly in our cultural identity. I know you've been interviewed a couple of times by the New York Times because they're interested in potential stories around this topic. And of course, there are various seed vaults around the the world, uh, most notably in Svalbard in Norway, trying to preserve uh, these these historic and, and culturally important and biologically important seeds. So I'm wondering if, if you feel hopeful and optimistic and good that this aspect of Native American culture is becoming more prized and more relevant and recognized. I do, Stuart, because I, I believe in our prophecies. Native American conception of time, indigenous perspectives of times are different. Uh, Western European notions tend to follow a very linear aspect. The past is the past and not as relevant, and it's what we're doing right now, which is more important. So it's very linear in nature compared to Native American time, um, which is very cyclical in epics and their ages or times. And we have several prophecies that are out there now. One, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in our last conversation, but the, the prophecy of the seventh generation. And in essence, it speaks about uh, a dark period for six generations that uh, is typically set at the period of uh, conquest by Europeans. Um, My guess is it probably began whenever you saw these mass epidemics affecting the tribal populations. I'd mentioned just the smallpox in Nebraska in the 1800s, and that affected 85 to 90% of the populations. So if something like that happens... That's going to change your whole mindset. But that's, those first generation, six generations of that prophecy were at a time of darkness. And uh, that period goes from conquest up into the very bottom in the 1950s of indigenous peoples in the United States and Canada. Um, but uh, it was all socioeconomic indicators were horrible. And after that time period, you see something begin to turn around. The... Seventh generation prophecy, primarily of the Dakota people, uh, relatives of the Omahas, uh, speak of that period coming to end with the successive birth of four albino bison, white buffalo calves, everything to our Red Road religion. Uh, She's the one who brought us our religion. And so that she would, uh, in some sense, reincarnate herself to come back. The the numbers alone around uh, bison are... Uh, astonishing. Uh, it was the mainstay of this continent. Uh, some estimates liberally say upwards to 100 million were on this continent. 
by 1885, there were uh, less than 5,000, most of which had escaped up into Canadian preserves. So it was a wholesale um, extinction effort in terms of warfare. That was a warfare against indigenous peoples. There were very few physical battles. There were some. Um, but you killed a bison and you killed the Indian, and it was nearly successful. So to have an albino come out of that, and not to mention four in succession, which began in 2001 and the fourth was born in 2007, a true albino was one out of 10 million. Well, there's not 10 million of them. There's arguably 50,000 pure DNA bison in America now. So to have four albino bison come out, it truly is remarkable. And uh, that prophecy says that all the children born after that time are the seventh generation. So for indigenous peoples, that means that my generation is as the sixth a teacher. And that was the real impetus for the book and the research and the change in direction of my life was to uh, become a good teacher and uh, to teach them because they are going to lead our nations to stand tall and proud. What was explained to me by a Dakota friend and spiritualist was that those non-natives children that are born after that time frame in 2007, they are also part of the seventh generation. And as they grow up and become leaders, uh, they are the ones who are finally going to be ready for our knowledge as indigenous people. So as the sixth, I'm preparing those youth and the seventh to understand that this is important. Uh, I believe that prophecy. I believe that it's happening today. I believe that even the, um, it's no coincidence that you and I are sitting here talking about this um, on public radio. So I know that you are friends with Edison Redness III, and he lives and works in Alliance. And Edison is of the Ogallala Sioux tribe. Mm -hmm. And we'll play a clip from him where he talks about the nature of the trauma that has been experienced by Native peoples since the uh, colonization by... Uh, Intergenerational those. trauma. Absolutely. And he speaks to that, but then speaks to the legacy of greatness that existed within the Native peoples. And that by retapping into that, recognizing it and reliving that is a way for his and other Native peoples to reclaim the glory and the proud legacy of, of who they are as a people. So we'll play that clip. And so this is Edison Redness III. You know, put yourself in our place of our ancestors 200 years ago. You know, when the westward expansion was happening, there was massacres and killings and loss of land and loss of culture. You know, um, so the people who survived all that, they, that was a traumatic experience. So then they passed that trauma on to their kids, who passed it on to their kids. Um, but yeah, the historical trauma, it does cause all that. You know, depression, anger, anxiety, fear. You know, you have distrust of whites, distrust of police or authority figures. And it's being diagnosed as a form of PTSD. You know, it'll take generations to remove that trauma. It's just, it's terrible. You know, you, like even now, as we talk, I'm getting flustered. My palms are getting sweaty. I can feel my heart rate rising. We're building back from that. You know, we, we learn our history, but then we learn you know, the, the greatness of who we are as a, as a people. You know, we learn of how we were back then instead of how we are now. We had the, we had the solution. All the problems today, we had the solution back then. Yeah. And it all came from our ceremonies and from our family life. 
you know, and nowadays I see all these people who are more interested, they're interested in let's save the planet, let's do this, you know, you know some of the old timers say that they're trying to be Indians, you know, they just, they, they, took, they took a long route, but they're coming back to the stuff that we tried to teach them. You know, so what, what makes me proud is just our history and our culture and our traditions today. Absolutely, I entirely agree with that. Um, of most of my work, uh, I think people have been most interested in the work with the corn. And I think uh, people always ask me this, and one of the teachings uh, in uh, growing successful corn um, goes beyond um, co-planting techniques. I mean, obviously, the corn takes nitrogen down the ground, beans put it back in, there's a natural symbiosis, uh, squash adds complexities, keeps out the raccoons. Uh, there, but there's much more of a deeper level that's going on there. And um, I was taught, and I'm still learning, that to really have an abundance around corn is that the spirit of corn needs to give her blessing. And to do that, you have to love each and every kernel. It's so precious, it's like a person. And to hear these types of teachings from other indigenous tribes and or my own, uh, have been very powerful. Uh, the Omahas uh, taught us to sing to the corn and people find that fascinating. But um, it's one of the things that I enjoy to do the most. Uh, there's lots of interesting science that could go along with it. I don't need to understand the science. But I do know that positive energy and good thought seems to be correlated to it. And by doing so, I, I know from a personal basis that has changed me in a profound way, this relationship with the crops. But it's not just the crops or the corn, but it's something about the physical aspects of getting one, one's hands into the soil. Uh, there's a notion among indigenous thought regarding... Uh, blood DNA, and I'm sure that my Lakota relative would agree uh, that it changes us somehow. If we just try with a good heart that the ancestors, they're going to speak through us somehow. Maybe it is through our DNA. They're going to turn back on these things. And perhaps um, understanding through the science of epigenetics that we are healing ourselves from colonization and intergenerational trauma. Uh, I found no greater solace than feeling my, quote, idle time, not that there's much, or making time. Tonight I will shell corn in my home, preparing it for next year. We categorize it, we separate it. We, this is for seed, this is for eating. This is so beautiful, I can't shell it yet. I'll leave it on the braid right now and admire it a little while longer. It's a love affair. I, I like that what you describe, the ancestor speaking to you, is reminiscent to me of, of what Edison Rednest is saying about how he tries to allow his native peers to open their eyes and, and ears back up to the ancestors speaking, speaking to your peoples. Absolutely. They're counting on us.
you talked about corn makes me think it's it's a metaphor really for all of humanity. This idea of loving each kernel uh, and singing to something beyond ourselves just makes me think about what a great, loving, strong, harmonious community would be like. Every single person being in harmony and us singing to each other. Wouldn't life be wonderful if we did that, Stuart? Well, not if I was singing. That would be a tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very serious topic, and I agree. It goes to uh, many of the core values I think you'll find among indigenous peoples. Uh, one that we all have. It's almost universal. And it was uh, growing up, I heard it. I, I've said it as thousands of times, but the older I get, hopefully the more wiser I get, it makes more sense. In Omaha, we say, Awe uh, thy wonga, they are Lakota relatives, say, Matankwiasi, all my relatives, all my relations. And it's an acknowledgement to all the other human beings. The medicine will of the Lakota is that circle with the different colors of the nations on there and that we are indeed related. And if we could but remember that uh, truly and seek the commonalities or celebrate life as a seed and that we're all different colors on the same cob, would it not be a more just and peaceful world? So the book that you are working on that is coming to fruition, Rediscovering America, Mm -hmm. I be grateful if you could talk just a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, especially, I like the title and this idea that in some ways, for me, America is in a state of perpetual growth and adaptation and striving and mostly striving for something better. And so I really like the idea of rediscovering America, especially on a day when we should be reflective and thinking about being thankful for what we have but maybe also what we can offer. Sure, it was, um, you know, the beginning of the title, of course, is uh, a play on the Columbus Discovery Doctrine. Uh, but at a certain point, I think a lot of my frustration uh, about this narrative, this fable that is not just Thanksgiving, but, you know, that history begins with Columbus. And it goes into the annals of American ethnology or anthropology in America. It was part of the Powell Doctrine, John Wesley Powell, who was the first leader of the academy in those sectors, as well as the Smithsonian. And so at a certain point, my frustration with this history was um, overtaken by the realization that I, too, as an indigenous person, just as a soul in this world can go on this journey to rediscover it for myself. And in the process, hopefully bring others along with me. And so it, it was, to me, the first step for um, becoming an, a post-colonial indigenous person. So I try to get beyond the narrative of, yes, we're still colonized, to what should we be? And this, what should we be as indigenous people or as human beings in general? Hopefully, this these explorations will be uh, a roadmap for others. Uh, there are times that the gravity of that as a potential weighs on my shoulders very heavily. Uh, but if this prophecy of the seventh generation is true, which I believe, um, but to know that my explorations in my backyard with corn or deep into a thousand years ago history in my little office 
might serve as a roadmap for the way the world should be in the future. It's it's very heavy, but that's what's on my mind as I write. And I take every conversation very seriously, whether it's exploring the roots of Thanksgiving to um, what does this world look like for the seventh generation? I believe that, you know, the earth is a living entity. And until we love her like our own mothers, it's not good enough. There's a, a, a teaching that um, I learned from an Odawa elder up in Canada, but it's the law of orders. And the, it says that the plant order needs to remain first in priority. Uh, second to them, beneath them, is the animal order for the animals depend upon the plants. And then comes us, the human beings, uh, the most special of all the orders. We need to keep ourselves tertiary to those other two. For if we put ourselves in dominion over those two, we destroy ourselves. And uh, those teachings that come from the Odawa people in particular, an elder by the name of Cecil King, Dr. King, who shared those with me, have profoundly changed my life. And to me, that's how we need to think about this. Uh, we need to start thinking in the long term. What is the impact of our decisions as leaders for the next seven generations? That's That's... That's a lot of years. That's almost 150 years that leaders should be thinking. We don't think that way enough today. We need to think that way more. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. And to get a closer look at the progress of Taylor's Sacred Sea project, you should follow Taylor on Instagram at instagram.com slash taylorkeen7 or uh, our website is sacredseed.org. I've been in conversation with Taylor Keen. Taylor, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. Always a pleasure. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.